Thank you, Gary, for those thoughtful words this morning around communion. And good morning, church. It's a hearty good morning. It's probably because of the nice weather, not because you're so glad to uh, be. No, it is because you're glad to be here. Said someone earlier, we we should have service outside. This is nice, isn't it? Spring is arriving and here. Enjoy that and enjoy our time around the word this morning. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer before we come to Daniel chapter 5. God, um, we come to you because we recognize and, um, and uh, realize that you are the real teacher here. The Spirit of God is the one who teaches us and guides us into all truth. And so we rely on you to teach us this morning. Drive home the, the points of application to our lives as we make our way through this uh, true account. May not just be a, a story on ancient page, but a story that's alive in our hearts this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. Now that's a strange way to start off a sermon. Howard Hendricks refers to that nursery rhyme and says, and he said it's like 20 or so years ago, and that's a parable of our day. We live in a broken world. We live in a society in which everything nailed down is coming loose. Things that people said could not happen are happening. Many in our day are asking, where is the glue to put our broken society back together again? And many attempts are made to fix the ills of society. The famous author Eugene O'Neill has one of his characters say it graphically. They say, you cannot build a marble temple out of a mixture of mud and manure. But we continue to try, don't we? We, we look to man to solve our problems. Again, Howard Hendricks said it this way. He said, man is almost insanely committed to the proposition that he has all the answers. We build sandcastles only to discover the inundating tides of reality washing them out to sea. Then, then we usually seek someone to blame. Now, isn't that the truth? Rather than own the brokenness and our contribution to the problem, we so often, as a society and as individuals, we play the blame game. There was an intriguing piece of graffiti in the city of uh, Philadelphia years ago. Scratched across the wall were these words, Humpty Dumpty was pushed. Humpty Dumpty was pushed. (laughs) Got to blame someone. Well, the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning is a snapshot of the human condition and that the handwriting on the wall is clear for all of us to see. And so I want to give you the lesson right up front here this morning. The lesson for today is simply this. To ignore God's warnings for too long will only end in disaster. To ignore God's warnings for too long will only end in disaster. Enter the man Belshazzar. He was ruler over a kingdom that was on its way out, and and Babylon was deteriorating quickly. It was on a course to disaster. It was about to fall, and no one was able to put it back together again. While we continue in our study in the book of Daniel on being a bright spot in a dark world, 
We're going to see once again Daniel shining brightly among some very dark times and and the stubborn, prideful man at the head of these dark and, and evil times was the man and king, Belshazzar. And so if you're not there, look with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. The Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 5. Serve you well to follow along with me if you can. Your Bibles on your phones, whatever you use to follow along. And and I want to note that as we come to chapter 5 this morning, there's a a lapse of time of 20 uh, to 30 years between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4, you might recall from last week, ended on a positive note of Nebuchadnezzar's praise to God after being humbled by God. Well, chapter 5 is the flip side of chapter 4. We come to the life of another king whose story is quite different. It's of the king Belshazzar. Two equally evil kings with very different endings. Now, before we dig into to, uh, Daniel chapter 5, I need to fill you in on a couple of matters that are going to help us in understanding chapter 5. Uh, first of all, uh, Belshazzar is mentioned as king. Now, the historians of the day um, say that, no, that the king at this time was Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel has it all wrong. No, no, he's likely sharing the kingship, a co-regency, with his father, Nebuchadnezzar. It's just that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king in charge at this time, but that likely he was off uh, fighting the Persians and likely at this time was, was captured. And so his son Belshazzar is acting king in his father's absence. Now the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is King Belshazzar's father caused some to question Daniel's uh, accurate record of this since he speaks of, of uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. So what's going on here? Some say, well, he obviously is not accurate. So the second matter we need to clear up before we look at the story itself is Daniel's use of the word father. It's used frequently in chapter 5. Now the word for father in Aramaic uh, and in Hebrew can refer to the person's actual dad, but not always. It could refer to uh, that person's predecessor um, or grandfather, which is where I kind of land on this. Because it's commonly believed uh, that Nebuchadnezzar married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and thus Nebuchadnezzar would be a grandfather to his daughter's children, including Belshazzar. So when you see father, as we're going through this this morning, uh, think um, uh, predecessor, or really more likely, insert grandfather, grandfather. All right, let's look at Daniel chapter 5. We kind of needed to address that so you don't get hung up on that along the way. All right, Daniel chapter 5, first heading this morning is, it's my party. It's my party. Look with me, chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets, the holy vessels, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, grandfather, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Now, some suggest that this drunk fest is just one big orgy. Okay, verse 3. 
So they brought the, in the, golden, the gold goblets or vessels that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now in the very opening verses here, the king makes a lot of bad calls. He makes a lot of bad calls. First, his first bad call, it's, it's a bad call for him uh, to send for the holy vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the Jewish temple when he captured Jerusalem and then for, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, then for Belshazzar to use these sacred vessels to celebrate pagan gods was nothing short of blasphemous. It's a slap in the face to Israel's God. And even at uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's worst, he never messed with the sacred vessels set apart for the God of Israel. So that's one bad call. He makes another bad call here, in my opinion. It's the timing. (laughs) The timing of of the biggest office party ever is a bad call, the timing. Let me give you a little backdrop. Um, It's very likely that while this party is going on inside the banquet hall, the Medes and the Persians have surrounded the city. The enemies have surrounded the city. Now, when your enemies have you surrounded, why party then? Why this party? Well, does a king figure that, that since he's about to be overtaken by the Medes and the Persians, that he might as well live it up in his last days? Uh, uh, you know, to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Is that where he's going with this? Because if this life is all you live for, then living it up seems like your only option. That's a life of futility. We have much more to live for than the pleasures of this life. And eat, drink, and be merry philosophy is for those who only hope is in this life. And that was the king. Now, it's even possible, some have suggested, that he's so consumed with the pleasures of this life that he's totally oblivious to what's going on around him. Now, I think the real reason behind this hosting of this party, that it's really telling of his prideful heart, He is so confident that in the the double impenetrable walls surrounding his city that that this is a way of kind of mocking his enemies. Go ahead, surround me if you want. You can do all you're never getting inside. Matter of fact, I'll show you how concerned I am. I mean, I'm really shaken here. We're going to have a party. We're just going to have, we're having a good time. You don't bother us one bit. And after all, the walls were 87 feet thick and 350 feet high. And on top of it, uh, surrounding Babylon were towers that rose 100 uh, to 400 feet where they could watch what was going on. And then there, there, there were 100 massive bronze gates. What they have to fear? They were well protected. And I believe Belshazzar here has a false sense of security. The king in his arrogance believed he was safe I think his trust is in the walls to protect him. It's, it's like the words spoken of the Titanic. Even God himself couldn't sink this ship. This was the king's confidence. No one could take this city down. No one could take Babylonian empire down. Not even God himself. And so, it's my party. And I'll drink if I want to. <laughs> it's my party. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll drink from the holy vessels if I want to. It's my party. And I'll snub my enemies if I want to. It's my party. And I'll shake my fist at God if I want to. The stage is set 
for God to intervene. And so the party's in full swing. Drinking, carrying on. Look at the first verse, first word of verse 5. Suddenly, some translations say at that very moment. Suddenly. And you know, my mind goes back to um, what we saw last week when Nebuchadnezzar was spewing words of boast. I built this for myself and I did this. Look what I did for myself. And right then it says, while the words were still on his lips, a voice came from heaven. Suddenly, and this time God shows up in a different way, and we have second heading this morning, God crashes the party. God crashes the party. Continue, verse 5 with me. Suddenly, or at that very moment, uh, now get this, I'm setting this up. They're drinking, they're carrying on, they're drunk out of their minds, they're having one great time. Suddenly, The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Now that just might sober everyone up pretty quickly, don't you think? This just might be one of the fastest examples of sobering up in human history. God writes on the wall. And we're told it's near the lampstand. That's that's not incidental. It's a well-lit area. God wanted to make sure everyone could see the words, and so he wrote some graffiti, if you will. Throughout the history, public walls have been used to communicate various ideas, commonly referred to as graffiti, right? You've seen some of them. Some of them aren't worth repeating, but I I remember seeing one, uh, reading about that graffiti on a restaurant's uh, marker board under the heading, Today's Special. Someone came along and wrote, and so is tomorrow. That's kind of cute. Someone wrote, question everything. And then someone came along and and wrote the word, why? (laughs) On a billboard were the words, Jesus is the answer. And someone came along and scribbled the words under it. What's the question? Graffiti seen on an overpass bridge on the highway said, you left the oven on. Now that will drive people bonkers right there. That's kind of nasty. And then under the words, this year thousands of people will die from stubbornness. Someone scribbled the words, no we won't. Well, are we about to see one man who's going to die from stubbornness? Look at the end of verse 5. The king watched the hand as it wrote. While everyone's living it up, God steps in and says, folks, this party's over. Everyone's carrying on when suddenly the music stops playing. The dancing girls uh, uh, stop moving. The waiters, they they stop serving. And the drunken king is suddenly gripped with fear. In verse 6, it says his face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I mean, the king is a mess. He's a basket case. He sees these words, this graffiti on the wall, and it makes no sense to him. He makes another bad call. He makes another better call. He calls for the wise men to come and help him out. And if you've been following along in this series, you see how helpful those wise men have been. They're pretty useless. I mean, if he had learned anything from his grandfather, it would be, don't call the wise men in. They're not going to help you. Now, whether it's the same dream team or some replacements that made up the wise men of Babylon, they have nothing to offer the king. What's this say? So the king, he even promised some rewards if they could tell him what was written and what they meant and, and, and dumb and dumber look at each other and go, oh, I have no idea. I don't know. Do you know what it means? I don't know what it means. 
Now, I wonder, I do wonder, really, why they were not able to unravel this message. Some say it's because the words were written in symbols and needed to be decoded. No, I think we'll see later on. That's not true. Was it because it was written in some unknown language? No, I don't think that's true either. Uh, it seems to me that the words appeared in Aramaic, which was a very well-known language in Babylon. But for some reason, these wise men couldn't read it or understand its meaning. I think it's a case of God confounding the wisdom of this world. To these wise men, the words made no sense. They did not convey any intelligible meaning. Paul, in the New Testament, he speaks of the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. See, this is a case in point of the inadequacy of human wisdom, and yet we keep looking to human wisdom to solve our problems and human methodologies to make our church grow. Why? Doesn't make sense. Well, enter the queen, verse 10. Verse 10. Now, she's the queen mother, by the way, not the wife of the king, for his wives and concubines are already at the party. And so, Belshazzar's mother walks in and asks, why do you look so pale? And that's spoken like a true mom. <laughs> you don't look so good. She tells him, you know, don't be alarmed by all this. Kind of get a hold of yourself there, son. And I'm sure he's thinking, that's easy for you to say, mom. These fingers <laughs> came out of nowhere and wrote some words on this plaster wall get a hold of myself? And it tells us in verse 11 that she then makes the recommendation, get Daniel's input on the handwriting, and the, the king really should have known about Daniel. It's likely he heard about him. But asking for Daniel to interpret the writing was never on his radar, and my take is that the king didn't want to hear from an exile that Daniel was beneath him. And I think it bears it out when, it, when Daniel does show up and how the king talks to him. Look at verse 13. The king says, are you Daniel? I mean, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? You one of those guys? What do you got? That's a little condescending and cynical toward uh, Daniel. I think the king's disdain for Daniel's God is very apparent here. See, that's going to happen when we stand out for God. Some are just going to hate us. We're going to see this next week, the cost of being a bright spot, of standing out. We're going to get to that next week. But since the king here is desperate for an answer to the writing on the wall, he's willing to give this Daniel a chance. And he offers Daniel the same rewards he promised to the wise men. It tells us at the end of verse 16, I'll give you some gifts. You're going to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom because it's me and my dad, one, two, and then you. You can be the third highest ruler. And, and, and Daniel, he refuses the rewards. I think it's because Daniel didn't want to give the king the impression he's in it for the money, for the rewards, about to bring glory to the God he serves. I don't even want anything confusing on this. But the truth is, really, if you stop and think about it, these gifts, and Daniel knew this, these gifts would be of no use anyway when the king is about to lose everything to the Medes and the Persians. I mean, after all, 100% of zero is still zero. And that's what Babylon's going to soon become. And, and who really wants to be third ruler in a kingdom that only has a few hours left? Just saying. All right, lesson not learned. Next heading, lesson not learned. Daniel gives the king here, 18 to 24, a little history lesson. You'll recall from last week that chapter 4 was the story of one king who was humbled by God. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to learn from him a lesson he learned the hard way, that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. It is always better to humble yourself than to be humbled by God. So Daniel reviews this with King Belshazzar. And King Belshazzar, he's walking the same path that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, walked. He should learn from his grandfather. If he continues his pride, God's going to humble him, and it's going to hurt. And so Daniel says to him, verse 22, verse 22, But you, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You see it? Though you knew all this, he could not plead ignorance. He was without excuse. He knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what the God of Israel had done to humble his grandfather. He likely knew of the God of Israel who rescued the three guys out of the thousand degree furnace unharmed, not a hair of their head or a thread of their clothing singed by the fire or even have the sniff of smoke on them. He knew all that. He knew not to mess with the holy vessels taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He knew. Though he knew all this, verse 23, very, very enlightening here. Verse 23 says, instead, you knew all this. You set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine for them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, the bronze, iron, wood, and stone which cannot see or hear or understand. That's how good your idols are. But, slow down here, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the description. The king did not honor the God who holds in his hand his very life. Literally, it's his very breath. The God who holds in his hand, all his ways, the king did not honor. Now, how might we be dishonoring to the one who gives us life? How might we have disrespected the God who holds in his hand our very breath? How have we on a personal level how have we on a national level ignored the warnings and we're headed for disaster? Cal Wilson in his book, Our Dance Has Turned to Death, he chronicles the pattern of decline in both the Greek and the Roman cultures of thousands of years ago. He's just chronicling the pattern of decline of those cultures, of Greek and Roman. And he says this of their decline. I think you'll pick up where I'm going with this. He says, men ceased to lead their families in spiritual and moral development. They neglected their wives and children in pursuit of material wealth and power. Men become so preoccupied with business ventures, they ignored their wives' intimate needs and began to be involved with other women. Because male and female role models are not in the home, children developed identity problems. Many children are unwanted, aborted, abandoned, molested, and left undisciplined. Now, church... He speaks of the demise of a culture of almost 2,000 years ago, but has a ring of familiarity for our culture today, does it not? Some things don't seem to change that much. As Winston Churchill put it, the one thing we've learned from history is that we don't learn from history. 
The handwriting's on the wall for our day. We seem to have lost our way in this country as we're more concerned about what offends others and less concerned about what offends God. Consider, bring it down to us, consider all that you know about God. What are you doing with what you know? Many, many grow up Christian. They know a lot. We're here many weeks out of the year. We know a lot. What are we doing with what we know? I can't help but think of Romans 1. It speaks of, of those who suppress the truth. In Romans chapter 1, and I'd encourage you to read 18 to 32, and community groups will be looking at this. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, it says, What may be known to them about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How? How has God made it plain to everyone? Romans 1 goes on, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Without excuse. You see, atheism is a choice. To not believe in God is a choice. Because you must suppress what you know. And once you suppress what you know, Romans tells us, you're on this downward spiral from exchanging the glory of God for idolatry. Because when you stop pushing God out, you're going to replace God with some other God or gods, and then, it, then what happens? It unravels to immorality. But the point is that no one can plead ignorance. See the handwriting on the wall. Ask, ask yourself, have I started to edge God out just ever so slightly in my life? You know what's going to happen? It's going to take an incredible amount of energy to keep suppressing what you know is true. So in what area of your life, ask myself the same question. Am I suppressing what I know to be right? What I know. Because if we're to be the bright spot in a dark world, it's going to mean addressing the interior matters of the heart. It will mean listening to the warning sign, seeing the handwriting on the wall, taking what we know and translating that into practice. And so if we're refusing in any way to acknowledge the truth in any area of our life, it's an, it's an indication that we're on this very slippery slope of exchanging the truth for some lie. You're on the path to worshiping someone or something else. And if you continue to ignore the writing on the wall, you're headed to disaster. Not only will you lead a life of deception, you'll even deceive yourself to thinking all is okay. You're just going to party on. I'm fine. I can party. You've heard the truth. You know the truth. What do you do with it? All right. Heading number four, you're going, good, move on, will you? Question, heading number four, when God says enough. It's not getting any better here. When God says enough. The king who knew how God humbled his grandfather in such dramatic fashion should have seen the handwriting on the wall. <laughs> Wait, he did. And it's verse 25 that we see the words God wrote on the wall. I believe they're written, written in, in Aramaic. The words, uh, uh, Minai, Minai, Tikal, Parson. Minai, Minai, Tikal, Parson. Now, by the way, as you probably already know, both Hebrew and, and, and Aramaic uh, words appear with no vowels present. Uh, the vowels have to be supplied for readability. All right, what do these letters mean? 
Now, fortunately, we don't have to guess what they mean. Daniel explains it uh, for the king and for us. All right, Menai, he says that one twice. Menai, he says, means numbered. Go further down in the passage, 26 and following. Menai means numbered. He's saying the king's days are numbered. His time is running out. A man's lying in the hospital when his doctor shows up with some bad news. And the doctor says to the patient, I'm afraid you only have three weeks to live. The patient replies, okay then, I'll take the last two weeks of July and the week between Christmas and New Year's. (laughs) That's not how it works. You don't get to choose. King's number is up. The king's number is up. Why will this reign be brought to an end? We come to the next word, tekel which literally means uh, weighed. And in those days, when they weighed things, they would put whatever the standard of weight was on one side of the scale, and on the other side, whatever the commodity was, and it had to balance. God's saying to the king here, my standard is over here, and you've come up light. You don't make it. And you know, I thought about how many people some have even said it to me, that, that what they're counting on at the end of their life. That God is going to weigh their lives, and, he's gonna, and hopefully it's going to be my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That isn't the scale God uses. He puts his standard of perfection and holiness on the one side, and then your entire life on the other side. And guess what? With God's standard on the one side, you come up light. You come up short. It won't balance. That's why there must be another way for us to stand before God and be approved by him. There is another way, the only way, and that's by standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. With God's standard of perfection on the one side, only what Jesus has done for us and our faith in his finished work for us balances the scale. That's the only way. Tekel, the king did not measure up to God's standard. He was unfit to continue. The kingdom would be taken from him because King Belshazzar was weighed by God's standard and he was found deficient. Minai, Minai, Tekel, and then Parson or Perez. Perez means separated or divided. It tells us Belshazzar's kingdom, the Babylonian empire, was going to be separated from him and given over and divided into the Medes and the Persians who were already surrounding the city. Now here's some sobering words, verse 30. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, I wish I had time to get into the very clever strategy that the historians tell us that the Medes and the Persian soldiers used to get into the city and conquer Babylon. Just we'll get away from our point this morning. God, research it. Check it out. It's very interesting how they got into the city. It's really under the walls. But suffice it to say, the soldiers totally took the mighty Babylon by surprise without any major battle or destruction. This As they were entering into the city to take them over, what's going on inside is Belshazzar and the others in charge were just living it up, having a great time at their party. That night, what the king thought was invincible was conquered and the unsinkable sank. Because God said enough. 
When God says enough, it's enough. The king's wine, women, and song had reached its limit. And I think what a lesson to all nations and superpowers today that no matter how extensive or sophisticated the defenses, no nation will be able to stand when God says enough. What a lesson to all of us on a personal level. The very thing that we might be trusting in for security can be gone in a moment that very night. The props we're leaning on can be removed. Don't get too smug. Don't ever assume. Don't ever assume. As we're talking about, we're trying to party on the inside here and, and things are trying to come into our hearts. Don't, get, don't ever assume that you are invincible. That, you, that you'll never fall. Don't ever assume that. Don't ever assume that you'll never be addicted to anything. Don't ever assume that you'll, you'll never get involved in, in an affair. Don't ever assume that you will not succumb to some ruinous sin around you because the enemy of our souls will do everything he can to bring us down. And church, we must be ever vigilant to his tactics, living in constant dependence upon our Lord who holds our life in his hands. That's where we need to be. I'm not there enough. I need to be there more. Let's not just party on, live like the reckless arrogance, with reckless arrogance like Belshazzar did. Let's not just party on, pretending everything is okay, and leave your heart unprotected. Are you seeing the handwriting on the wall warning you of some things that you're letting in your heart? Are there warning signs there? Are you listening? Am I listening? Six-year-old Max, he's playing in his room when his dad calls out to him, Max, Max, no response. After calling out to Max several times, the dad then walks into Max's room. He says, Max, why didn't you answer me when I called you? I didn't hear you, dad, Max says. You guys never heard that one. What do you mean you didn't hear me, his dad asks. Max says nothing. How many times didn't you hear me? He asks. And Max says, I don't know, maybe three, four, five times. <laughs> Is God calling out to you? Come to me. Is he calling out to you? Give that up. Give that sin up. You keep going down that path. It's going to be disastrous. Give it up. Is God calling out to you? Don't continue down that road. You still can get out. You can end your relationship with sin anytime. Get out. Is God calling your name? Do you hear him? Are you listening? Don't ignore it for too long. It's only going to end in disaster. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your powerful, powerful word. You have spoken. Now we know something today that maybe we didn't know when we walked in. And the challenge to my own heart is, what am I going to do with that? Suppress it? Listen to it? Follow it? Ignore it? 
Thank you for being incredibly patient with us. Keep leaning in on us, Lord. Keep calling out to us. Don't ever stop calling us. May we be a little more responsive to that so that we don't test your patience and presume on your grace. I pray in Jesus' name.